basically through this series, what we've been doing is looking at what stance should Christians take or what's a biblical perspective on various cultural issues. And um, so today we're looking at what stance should Christians take towards science and specifically creation I'm going to talk about today and creation science. And, uh, and basically how do, we, how do we live out our, our Christian faith uh, in the culture that is, uh, has certain, certain ideas about these things. And uh, I'm just going to open up in a word of prayer before I begin. There's lots of different ways that I could have gone with this, as you can imagine. There's stacks of books this high uh, on this topic. And I could have gone a lot of different directions, but mainly what I want to do is stick to our main theme of the summer, which is not necessarily getting into the nitty-gritty of, of creation science itself, although I'll do some of that. Um, but really, the object of today is to understand what, literally what our stance is. What approach do we take to people? How do we, how do we read the headlines? How do we uh, absorb the scientific discoveries? How do we interpret these things uh, in light of Scripture and in light of a God who created? And uh, what, how should we approach science and treat it in society and in culture? So that's what I'm aiming at today, and I'll just open in prayer. Father God, let's pray for your wisdom this morning. Uh, I pray for your, um, your Holy Spirit to be here among us, as we always ask every Sunday, uh, that as we open up your scripture, uh, but even as we engage with the uh, culture of our times and uh, what's going on in our school systems and, and what's going on in the headlines and, and what's going on in the world uh, with technology and the, and the naturalistic culture that we live in, probably the most naturalistic uh, on the face of the earth in history, uh, just how we as Christians are meant to engage with, with that. Uh, what stance do we take? How do we talk to people? How, do, how does it even affect our own belief and our faith in you, Lord? These are, these are all really real questions. And uh, so, God, I, I pray that you would uh, just open our hearts and our minds to, to what you would lead us, uh, that we would be obedient and that we would be faithful uh, representatives of you and your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen. So I, I want to start out um, this message by basically talking about uh, two myths. So there's two myths that we kind of have to dispel right away, uh, a cultural myth and a Christian myth uh, that may help us sort of orient ourselves as believers in how we look to science and how we deal with this topic of creation. And as Christians, I'll just point out, we tend to be, for some reason, I find there's, there's certain Christians that are really, really interested in the beginning of time and super interested in the end of time, and it's sometimes a struggle to get them to focus on the fact that we're here now and we've got things to do right now. Uh, you know, the beginning of time is super interesting, and revelation and the end of time is super interesting, and there's good stuff there, uh, but also just understand within the greater picture that God has called us to this time and this place to do things, uh, but... But as we look into Scripture uh, and on this issue of science, there's sort of two myths that I want to deal with right off the bat. And if, if you just sort of understood this today, it would be awesome. And the first myth is cultural. And uh, it's the entire cultural premise that, that faith and science, specifically Christianity and science, are at odds with each other. This is a kind of a cultural myth that, that is pervasive out there. It's, it's a multi-centrally long myth, and it's not sustained by history. It's one of those cultural facts that everybody just kind of takes for granted, that, of course, Christians disagree with science and that there's some sort of conflict there. Um, you know, it's like that 
cultural myth out there that, you know, lemmings commit suicide by jumping off cliffs. Everybody knows that, and you, it's not true, but we've all seen the Disney film where the lemmings are jumping off the cliff, and for decades people believed that lemmings jumped off cliffs, and they just took it for granted. And, and the idea that there's conflict between Christianity and science is one of these enduring myths. And I want to dispel that right away, and I thought the best way to dispel that was to let an atheist dispel that myth. And uh, so I'm going to read a fairly lengthy quote, but I'm just going to pick some highlights out of it from Tim O'Neill, uh, who is an atheist and a humanist and a naturalist. And he writes a blog and he does reviews at strangenotions.com. And, and this particular answer that he's giving is, is the Christian Dark Age and other hysterical myths. And in it, this atheist, Tim O'Neill, writes... One of the occupational hazards of being an atheist and a secular humanist who hangs around on discussion boards is to encounter a staggering level of historical illiteracy. Alongside the regular airings of the hoary old myth that the Bible was collated at the Council of Nicaea and the tedious internet-based Jesus never existed nonsense, otherwise intelligent people spouting pseudo-historical claims that would make even Dan Brown snort in derision, the myth that the Catholic Church caused the Dark Ages and the medieval period was a scientific wasteland is regularly wheeled creaking into the sunlight for another trundle around the arena. The myth goes that the Greeks and the Romans were wise and rational types who loved science and were on the brink of doing all kinds of marvelous things. Inventing full-scale steam engines is one example that is often invoked. Until Christianity came along, Christianity then banned all learning and rational thought and ushered in the Dark Ages. And then an iron-fisted theocracy backed by a Gestapo-style inquisition prevented any science or questioning of inquiry from happening until Leonardo da Vinci invented intelligence and the wondrous renaissance saved us all from the medieval darkness. So this is the myth that he sees regularly trundled around the arena. Someone invariably invokes this old conflict thesis that evolves into the usual ritual kicking of the Middle Ages as a benighted intellectual wasteland where humanity was shackled to superstition and oppressed by cackling minions of the evil old Catholic Church. He goes on to say, it's not hard to kick this nonsense to pieces, especially since the people presenting it know next to nothing about history and have simply picked up these strange ideas from websites and popular books. Lesson for all of us to learn there. The assertion collapses as soon as you hit them with hard evidence. I asked them to present me with the name of one, just one scientist burned, persecuted, or oppressed for their science in the Middle Ages, and they always fail to come up with any. In the academic sphere, at least, the conflict thesis of a historical war between science and theology has long since overturned. It's very odd that so many of my fellow atheists cling so desperately to a long-dead position that was only ever upheld by amateur 19th-century polemicists and not the careful research of recent objective peer-reviewed historians. And this is strange behavior for people who like to label themselves rationalists. So I just praise God for an atheist who's intellectually honest enough to admit the truth. Right? But this myth is pervasive out there. And the, the sad thing about this myth is not that atheists and agnostics and the culture believes it. The sad thing about this myth is that Christians believe it. That we have bought into this myth that somehow theology and science are at odds. And as Christians, we actually believe that this is true. And that's a problem. Ken Samples, a Christian scientist, writes, some within the evangelical and theological traditions have struggled with the false idea that an intense pursuit of the life of the mind is somehow at odds with Christian spirituality. 
The unfortunate belief that dies hard in some sections of evangelicalism is that faith and reason or spirituality and intellect are incompatible forces, and some Christians even think that reason and education tend to undermine faith. And Tim O'Neill goes on and has explained that this myth grew out of unhistorical interpretations from 19th century philosophers reflecting on the Middle Ages. But it has lingered, and it's, and it's ingrained in our culture now that faith and science and faith and intellectual inquisitiveness are somehow at odds with each other. And Ken goes on to say that this uneasiness around intellectualism can put young believers at a big disadvantage. And this is why we're talking about this today. Because if we pursue to, to keep this myth going, it puts young believers at a big disadvantage and it puts uh, people who are new in their faith at a big disadvantage in our culture and it places an unnecessary barrier to faith in front of those who are seeking because they think in order to believe in God and accept what the Bible teaches, they somehow have to give up something scientifically or intellectually. And that is not true. And we don't want to put any barriers in front of people to hear and understand the truth of the scriptures that we don't want to, that, that aren't there. We do a disservice to the gospel when we put barriers and we put hurdles in front of people that simply are not real. And so we must not misrepresent the faith to cause people to stumble or to disbelieve for the wrong reasons. But there's a second myth which is tied closely to this one, and, and that is that a scientific approach to Scripture or that an old earth, young earth debate is somehow a recent invention. This is the, the myth within the church, that, that this idea of an old earth or billions of years or, or that the days were longer than actual days is somehow a modern invention that just came after Darwin and after scientists started inventing it uh, or looking into that. But that's a myth within the church as well. The fact is that intelligent, faithful Christians have pondered the age of creation and God's means of creating since the earliest days of the church. In 2nd century, Christian apologist Justin Martyr wrote in his dialogue with Typho, in chapter 81, he said, For as Adam was told that in the day he ate of the tree he would die, we know that he did not complete a thousand years. And he says, We have perceived, moreover, that the expression, the day of the Lord is as a thousand years, is connected with this subject of creation. And then in the 3rd century, the scholar Origen of Alexandria, he went further in his book, First Principles, where he explores the first four days of creation and what frame of reference must be considered to conceive of an evening and a morning without a sun and a moon. And then in the 5th century, Augustine of Hippo refused to speculate what sort of day was meant in Genesis 1 and goes on to say in his paper, The Meaning of Genesis, he says, Even a non-Christian knows something about the earth, the heavens, and the other elements of this world, about the motion and the orbit of the stars, and even their size and relative positions, about the predictable eclipses of the sun and the moon and the cycles of the years and seasons, about the kinds of animals and shrubs and stones and so forth. And this knowledge he holds as being certain from reason and experience. Now it is a disgraceful and dangerous thing for an infidel to hear a Christian presumably giving the meaning of Holy Scriptures talking nonsense on these topics. And we should all take means to prevent such an embarrassing situation in which people show up vast ignorance in a Christian and laugh it to scorn. And so what St. Augustine here is saying, he's, he's expressing his frustration that Christians were making a big issue about a secondary topic or even a tertiary topic, and that them making a big issue about this secondary topic of what 
is the age of the universe or how do the stars move and where are they and how far away they are. It was becoming a barrier to evangelism and it was causing harm to the reputation of the church and to the reputation of the gospel in the world. And yet for centuries, Christians have held to either a young earth or an old earth view of creation. Intellectual Christians, faithful Christians, well-meaning Christians could hold either view and have for centuries and they've been able to still faithfully serve God and lead others to Christ. And so we have a cultural myth that somehow science is at odds with Christianity that's been perpetuated for centuries. And we have a church myth that somehow this old earth thing is only something modern that modern scientists have come up with. And yet it's always been a question in the church. And Christians for centuries have held various views on this issue of the beginning of time and how God created Holding to a young earth or an old earth view, it's a secondary, it's even a tertiary biblical issue. It's not primary. And so as mature Christians, it it doesn't affect your salvation. It, It doesn't affect your sanctification. It doesn't affect your understanding of the gospel. It doesn't change your theology or your morality or your obedience or your prayer life or your spiritual gifts or how you're called to be obedient and act in the body of Christ. So as Christians, especially as mature Christians, this is a really a second or third or fourth order issue. But, so you're saying, Paul, why are we talking about it then? But, because like Augustine saw, it may be, and it often is, in our naturalistic culture, it's a primary issue of evangelism. And it's a primary issue of belief and doubt. Because it causes people to doubt. And it makes them struggle with belief if for some reason they can't reconcile the issue of Scripture and science, of God and science. And so before we become Christians, or when we're very young in our faith, naturalism in our culture is held out. And by naturalism, I mean that everything that we see and everything that is can be explained by natural reasons and that there is no supernatural reason for anything. And so in our culture, and before we come to know Christ we are faced with, it's handed to us that naturalism is all that is needed. It's not even held out as an option. It's indoctrinated into us. From kindergarten on, we learn nothing from our cultural systems and apparatus of culture and education and government except that naturalism is the only answer. And so it is a primary issue when it comes to evangelism and when it comes to belief and doubt. But let's be clear. As Christians, we are pro-knowledge. We are pro-science. We are not afraid of information. We are not afraid of knowledge. We're not afraid of study or observation. God is remarkably capable, you know, being God, remarkably capable of standing up to scrutiny. He's okay with us examining his creation and examining who he is. He tells us in Romans 1 that if we look into nature, we will find him, and he will put himself on display in nature to the point that we will be without excuse for not knowing that there is a God who designed and put all this together. As Christians, historically, we've never been afraid of study or rational inquiry. All of the great Ivy League universities like Oxford and Harvard and Yale were founded as Christian colleges and seminaries. Protestant evangelical Christianity was the driving force behind rigorous education of the lower classes. And Christianity has founded thousands upon thousands of schools. Okay, Christians love knowledge. We love learning. Because God has made us in his image as rational, critical thinkers. God tells us that we are to love him fully with our heart, soul, and mind. 
Luke 10 says. And God is in the process of renewing our minds, Romans 12, 2 says. And Christians are discerning thinkers. Scripture tells us not to get caught up in empty philosophies in Colossians 2, 8, but then goes on to tell us to test everything and hold fast to what is good in 1 Thessalonians 5. There's nothing in Scripture that says throw out your mind. There's nothing in Scripture where God says just you know stop thinking and start believing. God says think and believe. Because He's not afraid of thinkers. He's not afraid of an inquiring mind. In fact, he says, your inquiry into my nature will show my existence. And so that's not to say that the church and Christians have never acted out of fear of the unknown, because this is the problem. As, as a church, we have acted out of fear of the unknown, and we have acted in the past historically out of fear from poorly interpreted scientific research or naturalistic results or interpretations that the culture has pushed Hey, Christians make mistakes too. But whenever we have acted out of fear and we have stopped being critical thinkers or engaging with science, we've only harmed our testimony through arrogance and we've not honored God or his scripture. So where does that bring us today? The fact is today we live in a highly scientific and rational culture that claims nothing more than nature, nothing supernatural is necessary or even possible to explain the origin of our universe or the human species. That's the culture we live in. We probably live in the most naturalistic culture that the face of the planet has ever seen in Western North America. Right? This is a culture that lives on rationalism and science like no other historical culture ever has. But how do we know how to engage that culture with integrity and not be on the one hand afraid of that culture and afraid of this naturalistic uh, agenda that they push, nor on the other hand do we want to be swept up in any of its possible errors and somehow be carried away by it. So we want to, as Christians, know our stance and how we respond to not be caught up in it and not be fearful of it. So how do we reconcile this? Specifically, as we, it applies to all areas of science, right? And there's lots of hotbed areas of science that is coming in conflict, apparently coming in conflict with, with faith. But, but specifically in this area of Genesis is what we're going to look at quickly today and then, and then come to some conclusions at the end about how we as parents and as students and just as people in culture can respond to this. So God says, and I have to do it fairly quickly, <laughs> God says in Genesis 1, 1 to 5, he says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day and the darkness night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And I could go on and you could read all of Genesis. I'm not going to do that. I think verses 1 to 5 kind of set the tone for where we're at. There is an explanation here that God gives that he is the creator. And so we're starting out with, as Christians, as we always do, we start out with, what does God say? What did God say? And God says, I created the universe. I created the earth. I created life. I created humans, specially in my image and different from all other forms of life. And then the rest of the Bible, the rest of his scripture from Genesis 1 on explains God's special relationship with mankind who he made in his image. And that God does not have a special relationship with any other creature other than mankind. God has no special relationship with your dog, as amazing as your dog might be. right? God does not have a special plan of redemption for your cat or your goldfish. right? He does not have a special plan of redemption for 
that you know, cute little fawn that you saw driving in today. God has a special plan of redemptions for humans that were created specially in nature for His purpose and in His image. And so what we hear God saying is, I created this. I created this for a purpose. I created this by means. I created this in a way. And I created this for a purpose to put you, my children, in the earth and to have a relationship with you. And so there's two simple tests of this theological reality. If we want to test Genesis 1 and what God said, we can ask ourselves, are we indeed as special in creation as the Bible says? When we look around, are are humans and people as special and different as God says? And then, even in a greater sense, is earth and its whole life support system and who we are in the universe unique? If what Genesis says is true, that we are a special creation and God created all of these things, and it was written thousands and thousands of years before anyone could know anything about things beyond our planet, then what we should find now, as we do have the capability to look beyond our planet, is that we should find out that, in fact, Genesis is true, that we are unique and special as a creation, not just even as humans in animal kingdom, but Earth in the universe. So that's what God says. Now, what does science observe? What do we observe scientifically? And I just want to briefly talk about the two different views here and sort of put them on the table and then take them off the table again really quickly. This idea of a young view of the creation and an old view of creation. I'm not going to go into an in-depth examination of both of those views. There's lots of places you can go and, and do that if you want to do those things. But what I'd rather do is just start out with a quick acknowledgement of what solid, intelligent, wise Christians who hold either view agree on. Because both views agree on far more than they disagree. Both young earth and old earth agree that our universe, plants, animals, and mankind are all created and sustained by God on an ongoing basis, that he's not a, just a cosmic watchmaker that created the universe and then let it go, but that God was specially involved in creation during the formation of the universe and the earth and us. And both views believe that mankind is a special creation. They both believe in a historical Adam and Eve and all the historicity of the Bible from Genesis 1 forward. Both views affirm the perfection and infallibility of scriptures. Both views agree on the fallen state of mankind into sin and our need of redemption. And that that redemption comes by and through the miraculous appearance of God on earth as Jesus Christ and his work on the cross and his miraculous resurrection. So neither view is trying to disprove miracles, okay? God is intervening in our creation. Both views agree on a final culmination of that redemptive plan that will include this natural world also being redeemed and being remade in ways that we can't fully comprehend. Okay, both views agree on all this stuff. What both views don't agree on, and this is my simple summation of it for this point in the sermon, and you can go get more research if you want, is what they fundamentally don't agree on is how did God use time when he did this? I mean, we know God created using the means of material. We know God created spiritually that we are nephed, soulish creatures that have the built in the image of God and the life of God breathed into us. We know God used those means. We know God used time in some means in creation, the long earth and the or the old earth and the young earth views simply disagree on how did God use time as a means in creation. That's really all they disagree on. Everything else they have agreement on theologically. Did God use a lot of time from our perspective? And is there some way in which God somehow stretched out the universe and spun everything into being in a short amount of time, relativistically speaking? 
And now the interesting thing is that whatever view you hold, you can observe the universe and you can do the science in nature the exact same way. Okay, and what I mean by that is if, if you're looking up at the stars and you are measuring the redshift of light from distant galaxies and the gravitational lensing effect as that starlight bends around intermediary galaxies, you measure that light and you draw your conclusions scientifically exactly the same whichever view you want to hold as a Christian. It doesn't change your science. It doesn't change your observation of this amazing universe that God has created for us to live in today. It doesn't matter how God let the clock tick for those years, or if he stretched it out, or how he did it, it simply matters that he did it, and God created it. And so going back to our two questions, what do we observe, and what do we measure in nature and biology, and and by observing these things, and and seeing these things in science, then how as Christians do we interpret them? Because atheist scientists and Christian scientists work with the exact same data, Okay, they got the same data. They see the same thing through the same telescope. They see the same fossil record. They got all the same data. It depends now on how you interpret that data. And so what do we observe and what do we measure in biology to test our theory of Genesis in terms of are we unique? And I'll just explain. I'm not an astrophysicist. I don't have a Ph.D. in geology or anything like that. I'm just a guy with some books and some smart friends and Google. And... uh, So this little segment here that I'm going to do just for five or six minutes here, a lot of this is coming from people like Hugh Ross, uh, who is the source of much of this, and uh, scientists who are much smarter than me. uh, But I just want to explain what we do see uh, in the world and what we do see uh, as we observe God's creation and whether there's something there that tells us that there is a designer, that this cannot just have happened by chance that there is actually an intelligent designer, that there is actually a fine-tuning of our universe, that beyond any statistical calculation that you want to conceivably come up with, no matter how many universes or no matter how many galaxies and stars are out there, we realize how incredibly specific and unique and, and, and amazing our world is. What both young or old Earth believes is on these perfect conditions, this design, this fine-tuning that has to take place at the macro and the micro level for any life to be sustained for any length of time, especially large-bodied, intelligent life like us, to exist and to be sustainable, not even for millions of years, but even just for 6,000 years. As you'll see, it's, it's even remarkable that we have this period of time on this planet, in this solar system, in this galaxy to even survive in this 6,000, 8,000-year period that we have. What all scientists see as we consider the universe and our galaxy and this solar system and this planet is that we are exceptionally unique. And there's a third myth there that I'm not going to get into, that somehow just because the universe is so large and has so many stars that life must somehow be common. As, as you'll see here, you'll find out that, in fact, the requirements of life are so specific that even scientifically speaking, statistically speaking, the evidence argues that we are unique as higher life forms in the universe. So first of all, really quickly, there's the fine-tuning of the universe itself, even for the universe to exist. The five cosmic constants, the gravitational force constant, which holds mass together, cannot be wrong 
by more than millionths, or else gravitational force would have either collapsed the universe or caused it to fly apart. There's the electromagnetic force, which holds electrons together and allows chemical bonds. Without the electromagnetic force being precisely what it is, we wouldn't have chemicals, we wouldn't have minerals, we wouldn't have any of the elements for life. The strong nuclear force constant, which holds atomic nuclei together. Without it, then we wouldn't have atoms. The weak nuclear force constant, which governs radioactive decay and star burn. If the weak nuclear force was even by an infinitesimal amount different than it was, all of the stars would have burnt out long ago or they would burn so hot that it would be impossible for anything to orbit them have life on it. The cosmological content, which prevents the universe from either collapsing or dispersing too quickly. For us to have the density of matter in our universe for galaxies and stars to form, you have to have a cosmological constant that is accurate to within 10 to the power of 24, or else it wouldn't exist. And then you have the initial conditions of the universe, which had to be so precisely tuned. There had to be a perfect initial distribution of mass and energy, or else we would have had, in other words, a low entropy early universe, or else the universe simply would have burned itself out within the first several microseconds, if you want to take a big bang view. The ratio of masses for protons and electrons. If the ratio between a proton and an electron was different, then you wouldn't have the formation of DNA. The velocity of light, or the, the which governs the perfect luminosity of stars needed. If light moved at a relativistic velocity that was any faster or any slower, then the energy that stars would expel would be different and we wouldn't be able to have life. The mass excess of neutrons over protons determines the amount of heavy elements that are needed for life and it would prevent stars and it prevents stars from collapsing. So these are just the early conditions of the universe that all need to be exactly what they are or our universe the way we see it doesn't exist. And you might say, well, you know, doesn't super string theory or M theory argue that maybe there's multiple universes and so we just happen to be in the universe where life worked out? The problem with that, the hard physicists and the hard scientists hate string theory because as soon as you go back before the Big Bang and you start to speculate about other universes, you've now ventured into philosophy. And so no hard scientist or hard theorist really gives a lot of credibility to the multiple universe because there's no way to test it and there's no way you can do science on it and now you're just, you're just back into philosophy and they don't want anything to do with that. And so the reality is our universe, even to form, has these constants. And then we have a universe against all odds. Just the cosmological constant is tuned to within one part in 10 to the power of the 34th. Okay, that's a 10 with 34 zeros after it. If it was off by one point in any of that, our universe wouldn't exist. And you can combine all the other odds of all the other things that need to be fine-tuned. And so then, on top of that, just for our universe to exist, there's the uniqueness of our galaxy within the larger supercluster of galaxies. You have to understand that galaxies are not spread exactly evenly the way raisins are spread exactly evenly through your grandma's raisin bread, because she does it so well. They're all clumped together into superclusters of galaxies. And if our supercluster of galaxy was more dense than it was, galaxies actually over millions and millions of years actually intersect each other and they collide and they tear each other apart and they reform. But our specific galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, is in a very great hospitable position for us to be within our supercluster of galaxies where we avoid near flybys and impacts with other galaxies, but also we're close enough to other galaxies 
where we get just enough supernova activity to seed heavy elements in our vicinity. And then there's the required shape of our galaxy. So again, this idea that planets are everywhere and they can all work. Well, planets that can sustain life will only ever exist in spiral arm galaxies because only spiral arm galaxies like the Milky Way produce those Goldilocks zones of almost empty space where a solar system can exist and not within the galaxy have close flybys with other solar systems. But also, other stars are close enough, again, to have that supernova effect where we get heavy elements and, radi- and, and materials that seed the early formation of our solar system that we need. The other thing is, is that within the galactic plane of the Milky Way, so you know it's a disk, and then we spiral around it. Within the galactic plane, the Milky Way is about uh, 1,000 light years thick, and that means that any solar system spiraling around the arms of the Milky Way tends to deviate in its path by up to 500 light years as it spirals around. And the Earth actually just recently crossed the galactic plane, actually, I think just a few years ago. We are pretty much right in the middle of that 1,000 light year wedge, and that is the perfect place for us to be, and we've been pretty close to it for the last you know, 50 to 100,000 years. It takes about 27 million years for us to bounce around. But the Earth bounces around within 200 light years of that galactic center. And that's important because at the center of our galaxy are supermassive black holes. And if we were to deviate in our solar system rotation around the galaxy by more than the light years, the 200 light years that we do deviate, then the solar system every 27 to 30 million years would have been exposed to hard radiation from those black holes at the center of our galaxy, which would have eliminated any possibility for life to form on our planet and in our solar system. But it's not only that. The reality is is that where we are within our spiral galaxy is that the heavy elements and the minerals that are required and that we find on Earth are not present. And so what scientists have discovered is, in fact, that the Earth was actually rotating and it first formed, our solar system first formed, much closer to the galactic center. We were actually about a third of the way closer to our galactic center when we first formed as a solar system. And because we were closer, we were in a heavier accretion disk where we got more heavy elements and more heavy materials in our solar system that would allow our planets to form. But then in, I think they call it the Great Migration, at some point the conditions in that earlier inner ring of our Milky Way galaxy on the spiral arm our solar system actually got slung shot out over the course of a couple hundred million years. It got slung shot out farther to where we reside now, just far enough to get us away from the dangerous radiation of the inner sphere, but close enough and not too far away that we would cool off in the outer arm of the spiral arm galaxy. And what that did is it seeded our solar system with all the heavy elements and all the materials that we needed to form the planetary bodies that we have now. And so this is not just an issue of, like with Mars, scientists think you're going to throw water and algae at a planet and somehow life is going to just appear. It doesn't happen that way. The number of factors and the journey that our solar system had to go through or to be fine-tunedly created in for us to sustain life is beyond imagining. And then within our solar system, that's just placing our galaxy within the large cluster and then our solar system within the galaxy. Within our solar system, space had to be cleared out of Earth's orbit for it to form peacefully, but not too peacefully. And that was done by perfectly sized Jupiter and Saturn that spiraled in towards the sun, into the gravity well of the sun at a certain point until they hit an orbital renaissance. And then after hitting that orbital renaissance, three to one for Jupiter and two to one for Saturn, they actually migrated back away from the sun to their current orbits where they are now, leaving space where Earth is. 
And that's only possible if they were exactly the mass and velocity that they are, to reside in a stable orbit protecting the Earth from further meteor bombardment from the Oort cloud objects. And then there had to be, within our solar system, the just right timing of a massive impact to transfer an incredible amount of rich elements to the Earth, to liquefy the surface and precipitate iron into our core to establish a magnetic field which protects our atmosphere from the solar radiation and the solar wind. And it also blew off extra water because too too much water, you don't get continents. And it put a unique extra large moon in our orbit, driving tidal forces and helping with tectonic plate activity, which is necessary for life. And that impact, among other things, added to Earth's crust a mineral elements in excess of 600 to 6,000 times more abundant than are found in concentrations elsewhere in the universe. Okay, you go look at other planets, you go look at other systems, there's nothing like the Earth. Okay, there's no rocky planets that have a moon like ours. There are no crusts that have the tectonic plate movement that we have. There is no formation, there is no heavy elements, there is no uranium, there is no plutonium, there is no, none of these elements that are needed for life exist except here. The sun had to be just the right radiation and the right brightness level, so at just the right size to allow rocky planets to form inside the solar snow line, the place within which liquid water can be sustained. We had to have the just right rotation speed and just the right axial tilt to permit seasons and temperature stability. We needed the gas giant planets of Jupiter and Saturn, as I said, to be outside of our orbit to protect us from comet impacts, but not too many comet impacts because we needed comet impacts to bring the elements that we needed for life. And so the surface of a life-sustaining planet has to have active plate tectonics that stay active for certain lengths of time in order to sequester carbon and maintain the atmosphere that we need. All of this stuff has to happen. Okay, and this is what science finds. This is what science discovers. And biologically, when you get after the formation of the planet, when you get to the biology, it comes to the arrival of life, the explosion of species discovered during the Cambrian and Jurassic and Triassic periods makes virtually no evolutionary sense. During the Cambrian period, the fossil record shows that nearly all modern forms of eye, if you just talk about the eye, okay, for just a minute, talk about the eye, one of the most complex in an evolutionary theory point of view, things to ever evolve. But in the Cambrian theory, all instances of all modern eyes nearly appeared at virtually the same time in the fossil record record with reflectors and lenses and corneas, compound hexagonal eyes, free-moving eyes on stalks, and inset eyes like we have. They all appeared at the same time in the Cambrian period in the fossil record. And also large-bodied, free-swimming ocean creatures appeared simultaneously with large-bodied, bottom-dwelling creatures, which evolutionary theory would say that the bottom-dwellers would arrive first and then they would evolve the flotation and swimming devices that would allow them to move freely in the ocean. But all of these species arrived at the same time with appendages and fins and vertebrae and bilateral symmetrical life. It just appeared. And many naturalist scientists have published research on the Cambrian and Jurassic explosions dealing with the problems that they pose to current theory. Richard Dawkins, very famous evolutionary biologist, writes, the Cambrian strata of rocks, vintage about 600 million years ago, are the oldest ones in which we find the most of the major vertebrate groups. And we find many of them already in an advanced state of evolution the very first time they appear. It's as though they were just planted there without any evolutionary history. Well, gee, I wonder how that could have happened. Right? 
Jeffrey Livington, also a, a naturalist uh, and a marine ecologist, he says, no single environmental or biological explanation for the Cambrian explosion satisfactorily explains the apparent sudden appearance of much of the diversity in bilaterian or symmetrical animal life. Gregory Ray, an evolutionary biologist, says, the rapidity with which phyla and classes appeared during the early Paleozoic, coupled with much lower rates of appearance for higher taxa since, poses as an outstanding problem for macroevolution. So this is just the reality, right? And I'm going to wrap it up here real quick because we could go deep into this. That, that, that we are not an accident here. When we go back to Genesis and God says, I created... I created this universe, I created this planet, I created this solar system, I created this life, and I created it specially. And not only that, but I created man specially in my image. And we test that by looking out into the world. What do we discover? We find out that Genesis, we find in the world exactly what Genesis said. That Earth is unique. That the fact that we exist where we exist in our galaxy superclutcher, in the spiral arm that we exist within our galaxy, not an elliptoid but a spiral, and all these other things, and then our solar system and the orbit that we exist in in our orbit and all the things that God has put in place to protect our planet and to enrich our planet and to give it what it needs to sustain life and then to create this period where we have this opportunity for higher life to form and then to be sustainable, that God planted a garden that life has thrived in an abundance which cannot be seen anywhere in the universe except here and that we have life form and that we are who we are, made in God's image with a soul and a consciousness to be able to even commune with God and to observe his nature and to find him in it. We find in observing the world exactly what Genesis tells us we should expect us to find. We are a special creation. That's who we are. And so as Christians... We do not fear science. We do not fear inquiry. We do not fear using our intellect to study God's amazing creation because all we're studying is how he managed to do the amazing thing that he did. How God made us his people. And through the eras of creation, God created life in ridiculous abundance, millions of species and mineral and natural resources in an abundance that we just can't even comprehend over the face of the whole earth, the amount of fresh water and the cycles. And I can't even get into all the stuff that has to be tuned the way it is. And so as Christians, we're not afraid of any science. We're not afraid of any of this. And as we look outward to the stars and inward to our planet, we find just what Genesis said we would find. And so then how do we do it then? And how do we now as Christians, what's our stance towards science if all this is true? As maturing believers, what, what weight should our observation on creation bear? So we should, Romans says that we're going to see God in nature, and so we should embrace all observation, and we should embrace all science that uncovers how God works. And we should marvel at the universe that God created and how he formed it. But we don't do this either. We don't use science as a test of God. And God never intended his general revelation to be how we know him. We know him secondly by his word. And we know him most personally by his spirit. And so God said, you can look at nature and you will find me and mankind will be without excuse. They'll know who I am. But God says, that's not where my revelation ends. I am actually a personal God. I have written you a book. I have sent you my word. I have sent you my son so that you can know me. And so as mature Christians, we understand that we can know about God through nature, but that it's in his word 
that we really draw closer to him. But only believers know God by his spirit dwelling in them personally and have full access to his word and to his creation by knowing him personally and by his spirit. That's how God intends us to know him, by his son and by his spirit. So as mature Christians, that's where we put our hope and that's where we put our knowledge of God. But then what do we tell our kids about science and nature? We're sending kids off to school. What do we tell them? What do we, what do we, how do they respond to their teachers? Or how do they respond to their classmates when they're, they're presented with the scientific information? We teach them. We say, we say to our kids, God made all of this, and everything that you find and will find in science or observation is a testimony to God's amazing creative power. God's means of creations are no less miraculous in whatever way he used time or in whatever way he used matter to create. It's all miraculous, and we're not afraid of miracles. Our gospel relies on a supernatural God becoming a man. It relies on a virgin birth and on a resurrection. So as Christians, we're eventually going to run into miracles, okay? And if, if people aren't going to believe because they don't believe in the miraculous, then it won't matter whether we convince them about creation or not. But we teach our kids that we have a personal God who loves us and he created us. And you can go into science and you can go into math and you can go into education and you can be as intellectual and as science-focused as you want to be and all it will do is teach you more and more about the greatness of our God. The purpose of Christian science is not to remove the necessity of miracles. We send our kids to school and we tell them to become scientists and don't be afraid of full and honest investigation into these theories, especially full and honest investigation into these naturalistic theories because they don't all hold up as well as the scientists would have you believe. And so we, we want Christian scientists. We want Christian inquiry. We invite it. We want to honestly investigate all of these things and lay out the glory of God in creation. We teach them that God is miraculous and that a naturalistic world will reject, reject God no matter how palatable we try and make it. And no matter how much evidence we show them, an atheist that wants to be an atheist is always going to be an atheist. You can't argue them into the faith. But you as a Christian can study science wholeheartedly and you can see God at work in our creation in ways that atheists and other naturalists can't see. And you'll be able to appreciate and embrace our creation in a way that those scientists can't embrace it and understand it. And so what should our kids do in science class and at school and their own studies? They should be honest and they should ask for honesty from those they're learning from. And they should ask for intellectual integrity from the science books that they read and the people who teach them. And they should face up to the flaws and the weakness of the naturalistic theories and then become scientists to study those theories and make them better. We as Christians do not run away from science. We don't run away from learning. We're not afraid of it. We love it. And how do we react to the newspaper headlines of all these scientific discoveries? Are we supposed to be afraid of them? No. We're supposed to marvel at them. We're not afraid of research. We're not afraid of science. We're not afraid of knowledge. We test every interpretation and we celebrate God's creativity in everything that scientists show us. That's the stance we have to have to our culture. Neither afraid of it nor swept up in its errors. But look at what science can teach us about God and marvel in it because it is amazing what our God has done. Let's pray. Father God, big topic obviously but what's most important is how it lands on our hearts and so my desire today is that there is no one here that is is somehow confused or 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 caught up in being misled by 
crazy scientific theories or that somehow just because there's science there can't be God or just because the earth is this or this happened that somehow you didn't do it, Lord. We know that you are present miraculously in all the means that you use in creation. Father, these, these forefathers of ours thousands of years ago, they weren't dumb. You know, like that's a mistake right there. That's a cultural myth that somehow just because it was thousands of years ago, people were dumber than we are. They weren't dumb. But they saw how you worked in creation. Lord, Psalm 139 tells us that you knit us together in our mother's womb. Okay, these were all farmers. They know what is happening in a womb, right? They know that the year not planting us there by a stork or something. But at the same time, the biology does not dismiss your miraculous presence informing us uniquely as we are. And it's the same way with the planets. It's the same way with creation. It's the same way with biology, Lord. You are present in all of it, working miraculously to accomplish your purposes. So the science does not exclude you, Lord. It simply reveals you. Father, I just pray that, again, there just be no conflict here this morning in people's hearts, that they can just let that go, that they, that they don't have to, to choose, and that they can fully embrace without fear all the scientific discovery of your wondrous creation and give you glory for it. In Christ's name, amen.